Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Charlotte, the 2023 Nobel Prize in Medicine, has been awarded to Catalin Caraco and Drew Weissman for their revolutionary work on mRNA vaccines. That's right, Diego. Their groundbreaking work has saved millions of lives during the COVID-19 pandemic and allowed societies to return to normal conditions. Speaking of which, last April, we discussed how mRNA vaccines have transformed the treatment of diseases, including COVID-19. These vaccines stimulate the body's immune response against a germ without exposing the individual to the disease-causing germ itself. Right, Diego. And the coronavirus mRNA vaccines contain mRNA molecules with the gene sequence that code for the coronavirus spike protein. This protein is located on the outside of a coronavirus, and it enables the virus to enter human cells. And it's this protein that the immune system detects, right? Once inside the body, the vaccine's mRNA sequence is used to produce the coronavirus spike protein, which then initiates an immune response. Exactly, Diego. And the beauty of mRNA vaccines is that they can be produced quickly by inserting additional genetic codes into the vaccine. But, as we know, the coronavirus has evolved rapidly since it was first identified in January 2020 as the cause of COVID-19. Yes, and now we have many variants around the world with different transmissibility, severity, and immune evasion. For example, the Omicron variant carries over 50 mutations, most of which occurred in the spike protein, making it harder for existing vaccines to detect and neutralize the virus. But thankfully, in September, approval was given to new COVID-19 vaccines that are a closer match to the coronavirus variants in circulation. These new vaccines, called bivalent, protect against both the original strain of coronavirus and more recent variants. That's a relief, isn't it? The Nobel Prize Committee hopes that the award will encourage hesitant people to get vaccinated. Yes, especially considering that death rates among persons vaccinated with the bivalent vaccine were 93% lower than death rates of unvaccinated persons in late 2022. The evidence is overwhelming that the mRNA vaccine provides effective protection against COVID-19. From the microscopic world of mRNA vaccines, let's now shift our focus to the grandeur of Mother Nature, a world where the Earth's inner workings are often as mysterious as they are spectacular. We're about to take you on a journey to the fiery heart of our planet, where science meets spectacle. Yes, we're talking about volcanoes. So brace yourself as we delve into a new scientific theory explaining the awe-inspiring phenomenon of volcanic fountaining. Charlotte, brace yourself for some explosive news. We're delving into the fiery world of volcanoes today. I'm all ears, Diego, and I'm hoping this isn't going to be a lava-ly, pun-filled conversation. No promises, Charlotte, but this is serious stuff. A multi-institutional team of scientists has come up with a new theory to explain a phenomenon known as volcanic fountaining. Ah, volcanic fountaining. That's when a volcano erupts and the lava shoots straight up into the sky, right? Kind of like what we see in cartoons. Exactly. The Fagradalsfjall volcano in Iceland, which erupted in 2021, provided a perfect case study. This wasn't a single big blast. It was a series of fountains at various heights, allowing researchers to get up close and- Wait, they got up close to an erupting volcano? That's some dedication to science. So what did they find out? Well, they used a device to conduct open-path Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy on the gases emitted from the volcano. 
By studying the chemical composition, they found clues that led them to a new theory. And that theory is? The theory suggests that beneath the caldera of volcanoes like Fagradalsfjall, there's a shallow cavity filled with magma. As magma ascends into the cavity, gases create a foam layer at the top. The collapse of this foam layer is what pushes the magma into the air, creating a fountain effect. It's like shaking a can of soda. Fascinating. So the cyclic nature of the fountaining is due to gases repeatedly creating a foam layer inside the cavity. But I assume more research is needed? Absolutely. But this theory could help explain fountaining in a variety of volcanoes around the world. It's a hot topic, Charlotte. And there it is, the pun I was waiting for. Thanks for the enlightening discussion, Diego. From the fiery depths of volcanic studies, we now move to a controversy that's causing quite a stir in the UK. While not quite as explosive as our previous topic, the debate over the relocation of some of Britain's most treasured collections is heating up. Let's delve into this contentious issue. So Charlotte, we've got a hot topic on our hands today. Some of the UK's most prized collections of historical, botanical, and zoological samples are set to be relocated from their current homes at the British Museum, Kew Gardens, and the Natural History Museum to a new facility at Reading University's Thames Valley Science Park. The move is being hailed as a necessary measure to protect these treasures and improve access to them, but not everyone's on board. That's right, Diego. There's been quite a backlash from some researchers who are calling the move cultural and scientific vandalism. They're not mincing their words, are they? No, they're not. And it's not just researchers. Over 15,000 people have signed a petition against the proposed relocation of Kew's 170-year-old herbarium. The collection, which houses over 7 million specimens of dried, pressed plants from around the world, is seen by many as an integral part of Kew's identity. Moving it, they argue, would disrupt the vital interaction between the collection and the rest of the botanic gardens. That's a valid concern. But the management at Kew insists that the move is necessary. They argue that the current herbarium building, which has already been expanded six times since it was first used in 1856, can't be further expanded due to Kew's world heritage status. They also cite the risk of flooding from the nearby River Thames and the potential for fire damage as reasons for the move. It's a bit of a catch-22 situation, isn't it? It certainly is. But let's not forget that the new facility is set to be a state-of-the-art science park. According to Kew's Director of Science, Prof. Alexandra Antonelli, the move will strengthen Britain's position in botanical research and innovation. He believes that the new location will allow the secrets of these specimens to be unlocked in the future. That's a compelling argument, but critics worry that the move could interfere with the work of scientists who are already stretched thin, trying to identify and conserve plants amidst increasing biodiversity loss. They argue that the herbarium should remain at the heart of Kew, where it's been for over a century. This is a heated debate, and it's clear that there are no easy answers. Absolutely. And it's not just Kew. The Natural History Museum is also facing opposition over its plans to relocate part of its collections to the new facility. A group of former museum senior staff members have written an open letter criticizing the move, claiming that it signals a loss of expertise and a breaking up of collections. They argue that creating digitized versions of the specimens will discourage people from handling the actual items. It's a tricky situation. 
On one hand, the new facility promises better preservation and easier access for researchers. On the other hand, critics argue that the move could disrupt the work of scientists and lead to a loss of expertise. It's clear that there's a lot at stake here. Indeed, there is. And it's worth noting that the British Museum has already begun transferring several million of its treasures to the new facility. Unlike Kew and the Natural History Museum, the move has been met with little opposition. But whether this will remain the case as the project progresses, only time will tell. From the preservation of historical and botanical treasures to the preservation of our planet, our focus now shifts to a pressing issue that affects us all, climate change. We'll be diving into a comprehensive study that examines the strategies cities and regions are employing to combat this global challenge. Stay tuned as we explore the effectiveness of these strategies and discuss the implications for our future. Welcome back, Diego. Today we're discussing a fascinating study that looks at how cities and regions are tackling climate change. It's a systematic review of 234 case studies, which is quite comprehensive. Indeed, Charlotte. This study is unique because it's not just acknowledging the potential of cities and regions to contribute to global mitigation efforts, it's actually looking at the effectiveness of their strategies. This is something that's been missing in the past. It's interesting to see that land use and development, circular economy and waste management strategies are highlighted as the most effective and reliable for reducing emissions. And yet there seems to be a misalignment between what's being focused on by policymakers and researchers and what's actually having the highest impact. Why do you think that might be, Diego? Well, Charlotte, it's a complex issue. There could be a range of factors at play, including political viability, resource availability, and the complexity of implementation. It's also worth noting that cities and regions have to balance their climate goals with other objectives, and these other objectives might act as the primary motivation for the implementation of a mitigation strategy. So, while a certain strategy might not have the highest expected impact in terms of emissions reduction, it could be providing other benefits that are of value to the community. That's an excellent point, Diego. It's not just about reducing emissions. It's about creating sustainable communities that are resilient and adaptable. But it's still concerning to see that transportation strategies, which are used most frequently by governments, are not among the most effective in reducing emissions. Yes, that's a bit of a conundrum. But again, it's important to remember that these strategies might be delivering other benefits. For example, promoting alternative modes of transportation might not have the biggest impact on emissions, but it could be improving air quality and public health, reducing traffic congestion, and promoting physical activity. So there's a lot to consider here. Absolutely, Diego. And it's clear from this study that more research is needed to understand subnational policy choices over mitigation strategies. With climate change being such a pressing issue, we need to ensure that our actions are as effective as possible. Couldn't agree more, Charlotte. And let's not forget that this study also highlights the need for ex-post evaluations of climate policies. It's not enough to just implement strategies. We need to be constantly evaluating and refining them to ensure they're delivering the desired outcomes. Definitely, Diego. It's a continuous process of learning and adapting. And hopefully studies like this one will help guide that process and ensure that our cities and regions are on the right track. 
Exactly, Charlotte. It's all about making informed decisions and taking effective action. And with the right strategies in place, cities and regions can play a significant role in mitigating climate change.